turn in your notes to page 23, page 23. All right, we'll get into lesson six of our series, the title of which is on the screen, Why You Can Trust the Bible, in just a bit, but I want to make a few announcements as quickly as I can. One is that the four Sundays of next month, June 7, 14, 21, 28, during this hour, but in diff- separate rooms, classrooms, we will have our newcomers orientation and our new members class. Both of those going on simultaneous with what will be going on in, in here during that time. So those classes are for the newcomers orientation is for those who are new to CBC. So if you are looking for a church, you've come here to check us out, then we provide this four-week class periodically to help you get information about who we are, where we've come from, what we believe, where we hope to go in the future. So I would encourage you, if you're a guest today and you're looking for a church, to set those four Sundays aside in June during this hour to take that class. I lead that class. We give you a notebook of 63 pages that we go through during those four weeks together. Uh, it's a small setting, so you can ask any questions you might have about our, our church as well. And this is important. When we finish with that, you're under no obligation and no pressure. So some people, understandably, might be hesitant to take the class, thinking that implies a commitment on my part to CBC. It doesn't. And they might hassle me after I'm done. We won't. So you have my, my promise on both of those. It's just for information for you. So mark that off if you fit into that category. You've never taken our newcomer's orientation. All four Sundays in June during the 11 o'clock hour. Simultaneous with that, in another room will be our new members class, and that's for those who have joined CBC since our last new members class. And you will get a direct invitation to that because we have a list of who you are, and that helps you take a deeper dive into how to get integrated into the life of the church. And then everybody else will be in here. We'll have guest speakers for those four weeks. And then I'll be back to persecute you after I'm finished with the newcomers orientation uh, starting in July. So that's the newcomers orientation and new members class. Also, on July the 19th is our next baptism. July the 19th. So now we're just two months away from that. If you have never been baptized, then Jesus commands that for all of those who say they are his followers. That means that you have been dunked in water, immersed. That's what baptism is because it's a symbol of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. We do that in the tank behind me. Uh, I've done it, I don't know how many times, but well over 100, maybe 200, and I've never lost anyone, okay? Now, I've never lost anyone completely. Um, I had one really big guy many years ago that, uh, it's, a, it's a really long story. All right, I'll tell it. Um, <laughs> the tank did not get completely filled. And when you have a really tall, big guy, that's a bad thing because that means he's got to go down that much further. And so he had to go down that much further and his feet came up. So if we don't have the thing already filled on your day for baptism, we'll let you skip, okay? But other than that, I've never lost anybody, all right? So you need to do that. It's an important matter that Christ commands for everyone. 
And so see me about that. In fact, what you can do is we have a one-page application for baptism. You can pick that up at the information center. You can fill that out this week. You can turn it in. They'll get it to me, and then we'll go from there. Last announcement is our teenagers in the middle of July are going to go on a ministry trip to Florida. They are going to help uh, Pastor Matt Owen and his church at Orange Park Bible Church in the Jacksonville area. Pastor Matt and his family were here for a number of years. God called them down to Jacksonville, and they've been there for a little over a year, and our teens are going down there to do some outreach for them, but also to have some fun together as as well. So it'll be ministry and some fellowship and some fun. Sounds like a great trip, but it's going to cost $450 per teen. So we're trying to defray the cost of that as much as we can for each of the teens. One way is that we're just accepting donations, just straight-up donations, over the next few weeks for anybody who would like to sponsor a teen. So if you'll give any amount, then we will assign one of the teens to you, and they'll report to you as to the impact of the trip and uh, how your donation helped them on that trip. But if you'll designate that on in the memo of a check or on an envelope over the next couple of weeks, then we'll make sure it gets to that and that a teenager is assigned to you. We anticipate having about 25, 26 of our teenagers going. Uh, so if we could collect $2,500, that would average $100 off for each of those kids and their families, uh, and that would then bring it down to $350. So if you can do that, uh, please think about that. Also, on June the 14th, that's a Sunday evening in this room, there's going to be a music night put on by our teenagers. The teenagers are going to do a number of, of special uh, numbers that they're rehearsing. And some of you have heard our teenagers sing. They've sung in church before. Uh, they do, do a great job. So you'll be blessed by their presentation. They're also going to uh, do hymns that night as well. I think, I think uh, that they're going to uh, take favorites, I think. So you get to yell out your favorite uh, that night. I think that they're going to do that. But they're going to do hymns. They're also going to do stuff that they have practiced. So it'll be a great night. And admission to that is just a donation of whatever whatever amount, okay? All right. Let me review where we've been in our series, Why You Can Trust the Bible. This is lesson six of eight. And in the prior five lessons, we looked at in lesson one the necessity of revelation, the necessity of revelation. If you were with us in today's first hour, I reminded you that the word revelation means to make known. So when I say the necessity of revelation, I'm saying that it's necessary for God to make known information about himself and about us and about his purpose for putting us here and creating the world. All of that has to come to us from God. If, in fact, God is the creator, then he is the one who knows why he created and he has to tell us. And that's what I mean by the necessity of revelation. But then in the second lesson, we looked at the necessity of Scripture. There's the necessity of God making known, but it's also necessary for God to preserve what he has made known. And that is done by inscripturating it, writing it, and preserving it in writing for us. The reason we have the Bible today, even though... Uh, the first book of the Bible was written about 4,000 years ago, probably. Uh, the book of Job is probably the first book written. And then the first books in the Bible written by Moses were 1500 B.C., as we're going to see a bit today. I'll show you why we say 1500 B.C. So you've got books in the Bible that are 2,000 uh, years, years old. 
uh, or excuse me, 4,000 years old and, uh, and 3,500 years old in the case of, of Moses. Your New Testament is 2,000 years old. So it's a, a book of antiquity. And yet it's been preserved for us because it's been inscripturated. It's been written down. So the necessity of revelation, the necessity of inscripturation. And then in lesson three, we started to look at some unique features in the Bible that point to its divine origin. One of those is that the Bible makes these amazingly detailed predictions about things that are going to happen in the future, prophecies. And we looked at several of those, particularly as regards the destiny of cities that had either obeyed God or disobeyed God, and God pronounced judgments and things that would happen with those cities, like Sidon and Tyre on the coast of the Mediterranean. And then in lesson four, we looked at predictions specifically focused on the Messiah, the Christ, the one who was predicted to come and to fulfill all of the things that the first part of your Bible pointed to. And that one we know today then is Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus Christ. And last week, lesson five, we looked at science and the Bible. How does what the Bible says about creation and the origin of the world jive with what the scientific community says today? Today, top of page 23, archaeology and the Bible. And science and archaeology actually have something important in common as it relates to the Bible. Because both of them, science and archaeology, have been occasions for skepticism regarding the truthfulness of the Bible. Many people look at science and what the science community says today about the origin of the universe. And since the Bible doesn't teach that, the Bible must be wrong, say they. You're going to see in our notes today, with regard to archaeology, folks have done that same thing for many years. If we don't find the name of a particular group of people that's mentioned in the Bible somewhere in history, in archaeological discoveries, if we don't find that, then the Bible must be wrong. So if science says this and the Bible says something else, the Bible must be wrong. If archaeology doesn't confirm what the Bible says about a particular group of people, the Bible must be wrong. Now, that's the approach that that many people take. And the question that you need to answer for yourself is this. Who has the burden of proof? So do you assume that, that science is correct and the Bible has to conform to science? Or do you assume that the Bible is correct and, the, and science, if it's factual, will conform to the Bible. Likewise with archaeology. Do you assume that only what can be archaeologically proven is true? Or if the Bible says it, then archaeology will have to catch up with it. That is what we call pre-commitments or sometimes called presuppositions. That everybody comes to the evidence with a set of pre-commitments, pre-suppositions. And I certainly do that, and, and you do that too as a Christian. You believe the Bible is God's Word. And believing that the Bible is God's Word, then that affects the way you look at the evidence and what you expect the evidence to say. And as we saw last week, if you were with us looking at science, science does the same thing. Scientists are not objective in the sense that they don't have pre-commitments that they bring to the evidence. And if you weren't here for that, all of our sessions are online. You can listen to that, and you've got the notes 
in, uh, in Lesson 5. So at one time, science said, and not many years ago, the consensus in the scientific community was that the universe had no beginning. The universe always was. Well, now the scientific consensus is the universe had a beginning uh, through the Big Bang. So at one time, the scientific community said there was no beginning. The Bible says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So the Bible must be wrong. Well, it turns out the Bible's right. Lo and behold, says now the scientific community, because they agree that there was a beginning. In archaeology, we're going to see in your notes today, there are numerous cities, people, events that history and archaeology had not uh, confirmed. And so the assumption was that the Bible must be the Bible must be wrong. Well, archaeology and history, if they haven't confirmed them, they just just haven't confirmed them yet. They just haven't confirmed them yet. And here, this might be helpful to you to remember the difference between these two words, existing and extant, E-X-T-A-N-T, E-X-T-A-N-T, existing and extant. You see, existing, we can say there exists no evidence for fill in the blank. But the word extant means existing and known. Existing and known. And so what you have in the body of data that scientists have available to them or archaeologists have available to them are simply what is existing and known, what's extant. That's all they have access to is what they is what they found, right? But what's extant does not mean that's all that exists. And the more they dig, lo and behold, the more that exists and the more stuff they find. And the more stuff they find, it confirms what the Bible has, has already said time and time again. So if you take a look at the top of page 23 then. Over the years, there have been many criticisms leveled against the Bible concerning its historical reliability. These criticisms are usually based on a lack of evidence from outside sources to confirm the biblical, the biblical record. Uh, so that's just what I was just saying. You know, if you don't have these outside sources that confirm it, well, then the Bible must be whacked on that particular thing. But let me, let me just make this point to you. That because the Bible is set in an historical context, then the way the Bible is, is given, the way the Bible reads in an historical context with claiming to have historical persons and places and events. Given that the Bible, the Bible's context is historical, then that is what gives the basis for this very criticism. You see, because the Bible itself opens itself to verification by being an historical document. And by saying that at a certain time, certain people existed and did these things. That opens it then to this, this verifiability. You know, that's not the case with other holy books. Take the Quran. The Quran is, the historical setting of the Quran is the life of Muhammad, period. And the Quran is written by one person assisted by an angel, Gabriel, according to Islam, but one person, Muhammad. So you either believe the Quran and Muhammad or you don't. 
There's nothing to verify. Historically, it was written in the lifetime, 7th century A.D., of Muhammad. And it is simply a bare claim to authority and teachings that are given by, by one person. The Bible is not put together that way. The Bible is in an historical context. And it mentions cities and it mentions people and over a long period of time. And those are open then to external verification. So the, the way the Bible's put together opens it to this. Other books are not that way. So it's similar to me to the criticism that is often leveled against Christians that I don't want to be a Christian because there are so many hypocrites. How many, how many people have heard that? There's so many hypocrites in the, in the church, right? Well, you know, the, our answer to that is there's always room for one more, so come on in. So <laughs> you'd be a perfect candidate, as a matter of fact. So that's one. But, but hear this now. The fact that Christianity has a public written standard to which we are accountable makes us especially open to the charge of hypocrisy. To put it another way, if you don't have a standard, you'll never be a hypocrite. So atheists, you know, can get away with this, right? But all these hypocrites in the church, all these Christians that are hypocrites. But if you are your own standard, you'll always meet it. If you are the standard, you always meet it because you just sort of make it up as you go. And we don't get to make it up as we go because it is written and it is a lofty standard indeed. And in fact, none of us here keeps that standard. We are all sinners. But the reason that we're open to the charge is the very nature of our revealed religion. God has revealed a standard and a lofty standard that contains his holy character. And so that charge of hypocrisy. I mean, here's another, here's another illustration uh, from the baseball world. You know, that sometimes the very nature of what something is opens it to a charge of something else. So we are open to this historical verification because of the nature of the Bible. We're open to the charge of hypocrisy because the Bible, we have a written and public standard against which we are judged. And this illustration from baseball goes back to 1984 and the 84 Tigers. And some of you are old enough to remember a world championship in 1984. Uh, oh, for those days. And uh, we went 35-5 and five in the first 40 games of that year. And uh, that was a, a terrific team. And mm-hmm. up the middle on that team, they had a terrific pitching staff, but they also had a, an all-star catcher in Lance Parrish. You know, they had Lou Whitaker and they had Alan Trammell. At shortstop at second base, and then they had Chet Lemon in center. I mean, right up the middle, catcher, pitchers, second, shortstop, center field. And up the middle, that was just that was a terrific team. But Chet Lemon, the center fielder, used to get lots of criticism. He used to get a lot of criticism because he played somewhat shallow, uh, so he would play he would play in, and then balls would get hit over his head. And there were times where he didn't quite get to a ball like he was six inches away from a ball or it hit his glove now here's the thing though is the very nature of the way this guy played opened him to that criticism because he got one of the best jumps on a ball off the crack of the bat than anybody as soon as the ball's hit he takes off 
He gets a better jump than anybody. And because he gets a better jump than most people, get this, he gets closer to the ball than most people. Which opens him to the charge, you should have caught it. Now the thing is, other guys wouldn't have been within 10 feet. He gets within six inches and we're going, that idiot shouldn't, can't catch the ball. Okay? So sometimes the nature of the way it's laid out, the way it's done, opens you to a particular criticism. The Bible's an historical document. But that's actually a feature. It's not a bug. It's actually a beautiful thing. Because the God of the Bible is the God of history. And the God of the Bible is guiding history to its appointed end. And the Bible is progressively unfolded in God's unfolding story. History is, as you've heard said, his story. And so it's laid out with people and events and places that are open to verification. So with that, again, page 23. Third line, yet archaeology consistently vindicates the accuracy of the biblical record with each new discovery. For instance, Bible critics once said that the name Canaan was not used at the time the Bible claims. However, discovery of the Ibla archive in northern Syria in the 70s has shown the biblical writings concerning the patriarchal period to be valid. Documents written on clay tablets from around 2300 B.C. demonstrate that personal and place names in the patriarchal accounts are genuine. The name Canaan was in use in Ibla. In addition, the word Tihom, the deep that we looked at in Genesis 1-2 today, was said to be a late word demonstrating the late writing of the creation story. And yet Tihom was part of the vocabulary of Ibla in use some 800 years before the time of Moses who wrote Genesis 1-2. So for the longest time, they're looking at these words and they go, those words weren't around at the time the Bible claims that these things were written and these things happened. And then lo and behold, they find tablets in which that word was in use 800 years before Moses lived. So these Ibla tablets are from 2300 B.C., 800 years before Moses, which means Moses which means Moses was in the 15th century B.C. 15th century B.C. Now, how do we, how do we know that? If you, if you have your Bible, I want to show you one of these ways in which the Bible is this historical document in which you can look at events and then you can put time markers on it. And if you don't have your Bible, you can just jot this down. Or if you have your Bible on your phone... And this is a perfect opportunity for you to text your friends, and we won't know. We'll think you're looking. We'll actually think you're looking at your Bible, okay? But all of you who use your uh, Bible on your phone, I'm very suspicious of all of you people, okay? <laughs> all of you. And at the judgment seat, it's all going to be there, baby. <laughs> I'm going to be there, and I'm going to see it all. And I'm going to be going. So 1 Kings chapter 6 and verse 1. 1 Kings 6, 1. And here's what it says. In the, 400, in the 480th year, after the Israelites had come out of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, the second month, he began... To build the temple of the Lord. So this is giving a time marker in which Solomon began to build the temple. 
When did he begin the temple? In the fourth year of his reign, according to that verse. But when was the fourth year of his reign? In the 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt. Now, who led the Israelites out of out of Egypt? Moses. So if I know something about when, some time marker about when the 480th year was that they came out of Egypt, I can peg when Moses lived and when the exodus happened, when they exited out of Egypt. And here we've got a couple of time markers. 480th year after the Israelites came out of Egypt is the same as the fourth year of Solomon's reign. Well, the good news is we know when Solomon began to reign. He began to reign and he began his kingship in 970, 970 B.C. 970 B.C. Now, the fourth year of his reign then would be 966 B.C. Because remember, when you're doing B.C., you have to go in that direction. So 966 B.C., fourth year of his, his reign. And the exodus occurred when Moses was active 480 years prior to that. So if you take 900, 966 and you add 480, you get 1446 B.C. The exodus occurred in 1446 B.C., according to the Bible. Now this helps you with all kinds of stuff. Well, that means Moses lived during the 15th century B.C. 1446 is when they, you know, God says, let my people go. The plagues come on Egypt and eventually Pharaoh has to relent. And he does, but that's all happening in 1446 B.C. The other thing it does is it helps you identify who the Pharaoh is. Because in the accounts in Exodus, it's just Pharaoh. And Pharaoh hardened his heart, and Pharaoh did this. So if you don't have those time markers, you don't know who the particular Pharaoh was. You don't know the particular things that were going on. So we're able to, we're able to uh, identify who the pharaoh was. And it's a pharaoh a couple hundred years, Amenhotep, if you care, after, a couple hundred years after the one on TV. Remember, the only pharaoh you know, right? You only know two pharaohs. You know Steve Martin, (laughs) born in Babylonia, Born in Arizona, moved to Babylonia, King Tut. That's who you guys know. Steve Martin and Yul Brenner. Yul Brenner on the Ten Commandments. Those are the only two pharaohs most of us know. And who was Yul Brenner? Ramses. But Ramses was not, was not the pharaoh in 1446 B.C. So the Bible gives you those kinds of time markers for us to then put in place what's happening and who's, and who's involved. Second paragraph on page 23. The Hittites were once thought to be a biblical legend until their capital and records were discovered in Turkey. Many thought the biblical references to Solomon's wealth were greatly exaggerated. Recovered records from the past show that wealth and antiquity was concentrated with the king and Solomon's prosperity was entirely feasible. I mean, speaking of King Tut, right? Tutankhamun's tomb and the fabulous wealth that was buried with it shows the kinds of uh, unbelievable wealth that was concentrated in, in the kings. It was once claimed that there was no Assyrian king named Sargon, as recorded in Isaiah 20, because this name was not known in any record. Then Sargon's palace was discovered in Iraq. 
The very event mentioned in Isaiah 20, his capture of Ashdod, was recorded on the palace walls. What is more, fragments memorializing the victory were found at the city of Ashdod itself. Another king who was in doubt was Belshazzar, king of Babylon. He's named in Daniel chapter 5. The last king of Babylon was Nabonidus, according to recorded history. Tablets were found showing that Belshazzar was Nabonidus' son, who served as co-regent in Babylon. So Belshazzar could make an offer to Daniel, quote, to be the third highest ruler in the kingdom, according to Daniel 5. If he read the handwriting on the wall, the highest available position. Why was it third? Why wasn't it second? Because you had Nabonidus and you had Belshazzar. They were co-regents. So he would be, he would be third. But for the longest time, they only had the name Nabonidus. And then they find out the relationship between the two in this co-regency. And it explains the very thing that Daniel records. That he was offered to be the third highest in, in the kingdom. So with all of that, friends... If you're a Bible believer, then no matter what you hear, every Easter, yikes. Every Easter. Just count on it like clockwork. Several weeks before Easter, somebody's going to make a discovery that they think has the body of Jesus in it. Okay? Just go with me on this. He's not there. All right? I mean, they'll keep trying and they'll make some claim. And there are always these these claims, and if you're a Bible believer, you've had enough time. God has shown himself to be true and faithful time and time again. That rather than assuming that the Bible is wrong, whenever there is an apparent, even if not real, conflict between science and archaeology, what you should assume is that science and archaeology simply have to catch up with the Bible. So here's another proof of the reliability of the Bible from archaeology. On page 23, the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1947, a young shepherd boy happened upon a cave along the Dead Sea while chasing several stray goats under his care. The boy threw a rock into the cave, heard the sound of breaking pottery, later investigated with his friends hoping to find treasure. They did find treasure, but not the variety they had hoped. Their discovery is recognized to be the greatest manuscript treasure ever found. Now just contemplate that. The shepherd boy's throwing just rocks, and he's throwing, he's throwing rocks uh, at these goats, and he breaks some pottery, and he later goes in and he finds these manuscripts. And are these ancient manuscripts called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now, if you look at page 24, top of page 24, after six seasons of intensive excavation, scholars were sure beyond any reasonable doubt the scrolls originated between 125 B.C. and A.D. 68. So 2,000-year-old documents. The scrolls have been stored in haste in the caves as the community fled the encroaching Roman army, which was in Judea, to put down the Jewish revolt of A.D. 66 through, through 70. So that, that community was known as the Qumran community. They fled the, the Romans, and in haste, they put these things in these clay pots, and there they are preserved in the arid, in the arid climate and in these clay pots where they could survive for all of that time. Now, look, skip down to the fourth paragraph. 
One of the most important contributions of the Dead Sea Scrolls is the numerous biblical manuscripts which have been discovered. Until those discoveries at Qumran, the oldest manuscripts of the Hebrew Scriptures were copies from the 9th and 10th centuries A.D. by a group of Jewish scribes called the Masoretes. All right, just stop there. 9th and 10th centuries A.D. So that would be 800-900 A.D. Now you've got manuscripts that are about a thousand years older than the stuff these guys were working with. The Hebrew manuscripts of the Old Testament, about a thousand years older. Now, wouldn't you be waiting with bated breath to find out if after all this time of copying these Hebrew manuscripts that are the basis for your Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, and after all this time of copying these, But the oldest ones we have are 800-900 A.D. And now we've got these things. It'll be really cool to compare those. Because a thousand years earlier, are they the same or not? Take a look at that fifth paragraph. The text of Isaiah has been shown to be substantially the same as the Masoretic text. Dr. Gleason Archer observes that the two copies of Isaiah found in the caves, quote, prove to be word for word identical with our standard Hebrew Bible in more than 95% of the text. The 5% variation consists chiefly of, chiefly of obvious slips of the pen and variations in spelling. And then he gives a specific example. Now, you just think about that. A thousand years of copying. And then you find manuscripts that are a thousand years newer, or excuse me, older, and you compare those, and they're word for word the same, except for these obvious slips. I mean, what are the chances of that? Um, you should play the lottery is, uh, is on, those, on those odds, okay? So this is God preserving his word. And, of course, we believed. We believed as Christians that if God inspired his word, if God is the originator of scripture, then a corollary of that inspiration is that God will preserve his word. We believe that. And we also believe that then any further discoveries are only going to further enhance that and confirm that. I had the opportunity a few years ago, several years ago now, to go to the University of Michigan did any guy? Did you go to that University of Michigan, Ken? I don't know if anybody else did, but we had a chance to go. To, we took a trip as a church to the University of Michigan, which people are surprised to learn has the fifth largest collection of biblical manuscripts in the world. And we took a trip to see their manuscript collection, and it, it's just a, it's just an amazing thing to be able to look under glass and to see a fragment of uh, Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians chapter 1, written in Greek. And this is dated by some scholars to be dated all the way back to 85 A.D. I mean, Paul is barely in the grave at that point. And there it is, almost 2,000 years old, written in Greek. And you look under glass, and I can read Ephesians 1 in Greek. And I'm going, that's the same thing I've been dealing with all of these years. That fragment from that time. That's God's amazing preservation of his, of his word. And then on the last couple of pages, page 25, 
You have other examples. Burial sites like that of Caiaphas, the high priest. He was high priest for 18 years and infamous as the leader of the conspiracy to crucify Jesus. After Jesus was arrested, he was taken to Caiaphas' home and detained overnight. The guards mocked and beat him. It was Caiaphas who asked him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? I am, Jesus said. The Caiaphas third paragraph, family tomb, was accidentally discovered by workers constructing a road in a park just south of the old city of Jerusalem. Archaeologists were hastily called to the scene. When they examined the tomb, they found 12 ossuaries, that's limestone bone boxes, containing the remains of 63 individuals. The most beautifully decorated of the ossuaries was inscribed with the name Joseph, son of, or the family of Caiaphas. That was the full name of the high priest who arrested Jesus, as documented by Josephus, the Jewish historian. Inside were the remains of a 60-year-old male, almost certainly those of the Caiaphas of the New Testament. That remarkable discovery has for the first time provided us with the physical remains of an individual named in the Bible. And then you have Caesar, Caesar Augustus. And you know that Caesar Augustus is the one who, according to Luke chapter 2, issued a decree that all the world should be should be taxed. And then this goes on to tell you how it is that we know that indeed he was the one and he indeed issued this decree uh, that the world, that a census should be taken for the purpose of taxation. Now, Luke chapter 2 tells us that, that Augustus, Luke tells us, issued this decree that a census would be taken and, and people had to report to the city of their ancestry for this census. And for Joseph and Mary, that meant Bethlehem. Now, why did it mean Bethlehem? It meant Bethlehem because of what I alluded to in our first hour from the book of Ruth. As it turned out, Ruth is gleaning in the fields of a guy named Boaz. And guess where Boaz is from? Bethlehem. And they get married, and their great-grandson becomes a guy named David, King David. And it is through the lineage of David that the son of David, the, the anointed one, the Messiah, would come. And it's because then at the time of, at the time of Jesus, when Augustus issues this decree, because the city of their ancestry was the city of David, Bethlehem, that they had to then make the trip to Bethlehem. So God is orchestrating, God is orchestrating all of this to get Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem at just the right time because God has predicted hundreds of years before in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2, Micah 5, 2, that the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. And he set all of the machinery in motion to make that happen hundreds of years before by this gal from Moab, Ruth, Marrying this Israelite named Boaz, who's from Bethlehem. And then Caesar Augustus comes along. And he says, I'm issuing a decree that all the world is going to be taxed. And for that to happen, we have to know how many people we've got. So there has to be this census. So everybody go back to the city of your ancestry so we can count you. And they do. Now, all the while, Caesar Augustus is considered a god. People worship him as a god. He thinks he's in control. But whose bidding is he doing when he issues that decree? You guys have heard me say over the years, 
Everybody works for God. Everybody works for God. Even people who don't like God. Even people who hate God. Even people who have no clue they're working for God. They're working for God. Caesar Augustus was working for God and he was used by God to issue that decree in a historical setting to put Mary and Joseph precisely where he wanted them to be at precisely the right time. Now, on the last page, you've got a bunch of other man-made structures that are mentioned in the Bible. I'd like to end with that theme of God getting everything where it's to go at just the right time orchestrating all of this, including guys like Caesar Augustus. One of my favorite passages in the Bible is in Galatians chapter 4, beginning in verse 4. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 4. Galatians 4.4 says this. When the time had fully come. Now let me stop there. When the time had fully come. What a a marvelous phrase. Because if you were with us in our first hour, God does everything on time, right? He created time. He controls time. He does everything on time. And Galatians 4.4 says, When the time had fully come. In the King James Version, it says, In the fullness of time. When the time had fully come. That is, when the time was just right that God had appointed. When the time had fully come, God sent forth His Son. The night that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, God had planned an eternity past. And he controlled all time so that when the time had fully come, he sent his son. He had been orchestrating that going back to Ruth and Boaz. Going back to Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. Putting Caesar Augustus on the throne to issue his decree. When the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, so that he would be organically related to the human race, so that as a human he could live the life that we should have lived and die the death that we deserved. Born of a woman. Born under the law, it says. That is, Jesus was born under the law and subject to God's law, and the Bible teaches us that he unlike anyone else ever, perfectly kept that law. So when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. To redeem us who were under the law and couldn't keep it. Now how cool is that? And God does all of that when the time fully comes. Now I'm going to end with this. God does everything he does, every last thing he does, exactly on time when the time has fully come. So that applies not just to the big stuff and the Caesar Augustuses of the world and the pharaohs of the world and getting Mary and Joseph to Bethlehem. That applies to every last detail in between. Now we're going to finish because it is the appointed hour and the nursery workers are scary and 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 they will kill me so i must finish soon but if you ever just want to do an exercise a mental exercise you take the events like i've just described caesar augustus micah predicting bethlehem's the place boaz and ruth 
when the time had fully come, God orchestrates all of this. But here's the mistake we make. We sometimes just look at those then vignettes of history. Ruth Boaz, Micah, Augustus, Mary and Joseph. And we forget that in order for those things to to be done right on time, every last detail before and after had to be right on time as well. You guys get that? I mean, if one chariot turns left instead of right, on some dusty road in Palestine and somebody gets killed and that affects the line going through. God has to control every piece of that. And God's in control of every last piece of what happens in his world. So in the words of one theologian, this is further proof that there's not a maverick molecule in the universe. There's not one molecule doing its own thing. Every one of them are doing exactly what God has designed. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day, the opportunity to worship you and learn of you. Lord, help us to go this week with great confidence in the God who has made all things, who has made us, and who makes all things beautiful in his time. Therefore, help us not to worry, help us not to fret, help us to go with confidence into the circumstances that you provide for us this week. May we please you, may we glorify you, and we ask you to grant us safety. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.